If you brought a Bible with you, uh, you brought a copy of God's Word, find Romans chapter 12, if you would, Romans chapter 12. And I know that uh, you undoubtedly, many of you are wondering what this bell is doing on the center of the communion table. And there's a set, when I asked for this thing, they said, how big is this? Oh, I hadn't seen it for years. I said, oh, it's probably about like this. It's a lot bigger than that. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I got to think we should have a contest just to see before the service how many can guess what the illustration of the bell is going to be all about. Because uh, this text I'm going to be preaching on should ring a bell, no pun intended. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. How many of you have memorized it? How many of you have memorized Romans 12, 1 and 2? Just raise, I'm not going to ask you to quote it. Just raise your hand if you've memorized it, okay? There's several of you. This is a passage of Scripture every single Christian should have memorized. Every single Christian should meditate upon on a regular basis. It's one of the very first verses I ever memorized, and I encourage all of you to take this passage of Scripture to heart. And because familiarity breeds contempt oftentimes, we need to revisit these passages and sort of flesh out exactly what they mean to us, how they apply to our lives as, as Christians particularly. And of course, that might not apply to a number of you who are not Christians, but at the same time, we want you to be drawn near as well. We'll, we'll definitely inc- include you in this sermon. Uh, But Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2 says this out of the ESV. It says, Romans chapter 12, are you there? It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or as some of your Bibles say, reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that good and acceptable and perfect, that is, perfect will of God. The great Christian apologist, Ravi Zacharias, was on, in, at Princeton University some time ago, and he was debating some of these uh, secularists that were there, and talking about God and the presence of evil in this world, And uh, he referred to the man who came to Jesus who uh, asked him about paying taxes. You remember that story? To which Jesus said, well, give me a coin. Remember that? And Jesus said, whose image is on the coin? To which the man replied, well, it's Caesar's image. And Jesus said, well, then give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Give to God that which is God's. Of course, the implication is that coinage, part of that coinage is going to go back to Caesar. Uh, Ravi Zacharias then postulated that the man should have had a follow-up question. What do I give to God? And Zacharias said, if he had asked that question, Jesus would have said to him, whose image is on you? Well, do you have the image of God? I would say to you that, this is the good news, everyone here, everyone in this room, without exception, has the image of God upon them. The Bible tells us that because God created you and he created everyone in his image. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, let us create man in our own image and our own likeness. 
Now, they say, well, yeah, but sin kind of messed all of that up, did it not? Well, yes, it did. But James still tells us that regardless of sin in this world, we still maintain the image of God in our lives. Now, for those of you who are true children of God, the image of God is not just upon you, it is within you. And it desires to flesh out, so to speak. And again, I make no allusions to the fact that not everybody here is a child of God. But for those of you who are, you should know that the image of God isn't just on you, it's in you. And it's for that reason that Paul purposely in this passage of Scripture dramatically contrasts two Greek words that could not be more polar opposites when he says in verse 2, so therefore be no longer conformed, there's the first word, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The word conformed is where we get our word to scheme. It literally carries the idea of that which is outward shaping you, you know, boxing you in and directing you in your life. Whereas the word transformed is where we get our word metamorphous. It's, it's just like the caterpillar that becomes the butterfly. It's a, the idea is that which is within you, changing you from within and fleshing itself out, so to speak, if you would, if you please. So, it, Paul had this in mind when he said to the Philippians, he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do or to work, that is to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if God's image is within you, he is working in you. So he's working upon you. He's disciplining you. He's doing what it, whatever needs to happen so that his image might flesh out for others to see. When our salvation comes out, Jesus comes on and people see him in Romans chapter 12 as we are now resuming our study of Romans that we suspended at the end of the school year and so welcome back in Romans chapter 12 this is the back of the book section of Romans Paul often in his epistles has a hinge section where he deals with doctrine and theology and the deeper things of God, and then he turns the page to the practical aspects of how we apply this this theology of God to our lives. And this is that section of Romans. There's a lot of deep stuff here, but this is the back of the book section, so to speak. It's the so what section. Doctrine must give way to devotion, and devotion must give way to duty. Otherwise, it's a scam. And Christians have been scamming this world long enough. Let us not be a part of that. Let our, devotion, our doctrine give way to devotion, which gives way to duty. We are his workmanship. Isn't that what the book of Ephesians says? You know, by grace you're saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's the free gift of God. It's not a result of works so that we might boast about it. And we say, amen. But then we are his workmanship. His poema, his work of art, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Therefore, our doctrine must leave, lead, that is, to devotion and duty. James says, you know, faith without works is dead being alone. 
And we say amen to that. That's why the great reformer Calvin was right when he said it's faith alone that saves, but faith that saves is never, is never alone. It's always accompanied by the power of God fleshing itself out. If anyone's in Christ, there are what? New creation. That's why the godly Anglican Bishop Hadley Mule said over a hundred years ago, beware equally of an undevotional theology and an untheological devotion. Both are pits. We forge them together. God never intended theology to simply be studied in a stale-like way. He never intended devotion and praise to be without truth. That's the reason why the psalmist said God is near to all those who call upon him. That's devotion. To all who call upon him in truth, that's good theology welded together. These are some of the earliest verses I ever memorized, and some of you as well, I'm quite sure. They lay out for us what the surrendered life looks like and how the image of God comes out of our life, or should at least. And it is assuming that you've already given your soul to God. We know that because I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. You see that? So he's definitely talking to Christians. So here, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you may leave. No, I'm just kidding. Don't leave. Please don't leave. We are so glad you're here. We, We... thrill over the opportunity to be able to talk to people about Jesus, for people to hear the gospel, to hear the word of God, even as it's applied more directly to Christians, because the gospel always comes out here, and we want you to listen carefully, and by the time we make it to the communion table, Lord willing, this will all start to make sense, as it did to one man who met me at the door at the end of the last hour and said, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior, and he did right back there. So listen up. And this is real simple. I'm a simple kind of guy, so I like to simplify things, and I love it when God does the same thing, and Paul does that here. He basically is going to tell you and me that the surrendered life involves two things. Are you ready for this? Our body and our mind. Would you say, well, that's a part of it. Yes, but there are two things here, the body and the mind. First, there is a passionate plea to surrender. There is a passionate plea to be surrendered to God based on what God has already done for you. Look what he says again. I plead. That means Some of your Bibles say beseech. It means to urge. It means to beg. I beg of you. It's, it's, a, it's different than commanding. It's a different word. He's not commanding us. He is urging and making a very strong appeal. You get the sense of it and the way he spoke to Philemon. Here's what Paul said to Philemon. He said this. He said, I'll pull it up here if it doesn't come up. Uh, According though, I'm bold enough in Christ, there it is, to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to, and there's our word, appeal to you. Appeal to you. Paul could command us, but rather he is, instead he's appealing. And the reason why he's doing this is because what he's telling us here is not something that ought to have to be commanded. If we comprehend on any level what God has done for us. If we grasp the mercies of God in our lives, I don't have, if you grasp the mercies of God in your life, I don't have to command you. I just have to appeal to you to be surrendered to him. And that's what Paul is is basically doing here. And the basis 
for this surrender is just that, the mercies, plural, of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or reasonable service. And so when he talks about the mercies of God, he's taking us back to the first 11 chapters of Romans, all of that heavy theology that, where it talks about you and I being, you know, the wrath of God was against us because we suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, chapter one, and our conscience, even though we have a consciousness of God, we've, we've pushed him away from us, we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. There is none righteous, not even one, but God, who is rich in mercy, gave us Jesus, Amen. And therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God applies his righteousness to us on the basis of what Christ did for us. And Paul has covered all of that and a lot more in those first 11 chapters. All of those mercies. And he's saying, I appeal to you on the basis of all those things that you've experienced, my brethren. Present your body, a living sacrifice. And so... He's taking us back to the sheer love, patience, power, and mercy of God. By the way, you want to know what keeps a church healthy when souls are being saved and baptized and giving testimony to the saving power of God? I've said that for years. Healthy churches always are seeing people saved, baptized, and joined to the church. But what it is that keeps the entire church healthy that way is you just have to think back a week ago. We've been baptizing people regularly around here throughout the summer. We have a bunch of people waiting to get baptized right now. Praise the Lord. But when they get baptized, isn't it true that their testimonies, their tears, their quivering lips, the breaking down, their being overwhelmed at what God has done, doesn't that sort of wash over you? Doesn't it kind of wash over you and make you safe, or at least it should from time to time? Where are my tears? Where's my sense of gratitude? Where's my joy? Where's my quivering? Where am I in awe? These guys are in awe of God. They're in love with Jesus. I was there at one time. Isn't that what happens sometimes? That's what keeps the church healthy, this constant washing over of these testimonies when people are being saved. The mercies of God The mercies of God take us back to our own personal deliverance. By the way, that's the reason why. This is the inherent problem of churches uh, that rarely see conversions. They may be doctrinally sound, but, but because they never see this experience where God is working and changing people's lives and that constant washing over the congregation of people's testimonies because they don't see that on a regular basis. That's where the legalism creeps in. That's where the hardness starts to take place and needs to be broken. The mercies of God constantly are taking us back to what God has done to us at our own personal deliverance. Yesterday was my 32nd anniversary of my salvation. Nobody sent me a gift. You didn't have to. I already got the gift. The gift of God was the eternal life. And on that anniversary, I take a time where I just meditate upon that day, what took place. I go back in time. I relive it in my mind. And I just let it wash over me all over again, so to speak. 
If we lose our awe of salvation, I'm telling you, you lose a lot more than that. It is the very precedent that Paul pleads for us never to lose and the very basis of a surrendered life. All other motives for Christian living are secondary to what God has done for you in Christ. If your motive for living for Jesus is to be an example to your kids, then that becomes the standard for your kids' righteousness. If your motivation for the Christian life is the reward of heaven, then I have made my prize the reward and not the rewarder. I have to constantly keep my joy to be completely in God. And so, in the first 11 chapters, Paul has addressed the issues of the soul. Depraved, separated, the gospel was needed. We have those inward struggles. The Spirit of God comes in and he helps us in our struggles. The sovereignty of God and all of that, those first 11 chapters. And now, he turns the page and deals with a surrendered life. And it starts with the body and the mind. The other thing I see Paul saying here, second thing, is there is a call to surrender. Your body, based on the sheer logic of what God has done. So he says, I beg of you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your, some of your Bibles say spiritual worship. That's never made a lot of sense to me. It can be translated that, but I actually, the older translation makes more sense. Your reasonable service, the word reasonable is the word logicane. We get our word logic from this word. Isn't it logical? I mean, that's Paul's whole appeal here. It's logical that you give your life to God on the basis of what he has done for you. And he says, present your bodies. That word present includes the idea of Yielding or surrendering up or giving something to, at, to someone else's disposal. What's more is it's aorist tense, which is past tense. And that's important here because it conveys a one-time act of surrender, dedication, which, by the way, makes sense if you're talking about a living, if you're talking about a sacrifice, by definition, you can only kill an animal once, right? You can't kill a bull and then kill it again. You can, you know... You can only kill it once. And he's likening us as living sacrifices and you can only die one time. So he's saying, dedicate your life to God once and for all. That's what he's saying here. Radically give yourself back to God for what he has done for you and to you. It's a picture of giving something once and for all. No conditions no take-backs. Let me illust- illustrate it for you with this bell. Once upon a time in a church in Des Moines, an old bell showed up again that was once rung from the very Sunday school bell tower of that church to call everyone into Sunday school. But through the transition and building way, way, way back in the day of this particular church, 
The, del- the bell just basically got lost. It literally got lost. The old man, an old man rather, showed up one day and claimed that he found the bell laying in the grass, just laying out in the grass, and he basically rescued it, so to speak. And so he was coming to give it back to us, I mean to that church. In fact, he was, we thought it was really cool that he was, I mean, the church thought it was really cool that he was giving it back to them. They even built a, a little place where they could put the bell as a sort of a historical note of, you know, what used to be the thing that rang the Sunday school bell. And, but we had to take it all down because the man came back. He came back and he said, well, I know I gave you the bell, but I, I forgot about the conditions. And so he, want, he had paperwork, legal paperwork drawn up. That if this didn't happen, the bell would do this and this. So we, I mean, the church responded to the guy like this. We said, no conditions, no takebacks. You either give it up to the church that originally owned it, hmm, or don't give it at all. He walked away and never returned. But we have the bell. Listen, here's what God says to you. God says to you, who, if you're a Christian, God says to you, I own you. I own you. So give yourself back to me. No conditions, no take back. I won't promise you earthly prosperity or great health, but I can promise you this, joy inexpressible and full of glory. And the opportunity to ring out, no pun intended, for me. So Paul says here that we are to present ourselves once and for all for God. No conditions, no take backs. And offer ourselves, look, our bodies as a living sacrifice. Our body. Now, why does he say body? Why doesn't he just say our eyes, our hands, get our feet in there? Get the whole, you know, different, you know, different parts of the body, because we all struggle with different parts of the body. I mean, Job did say, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon the, the young woman. Have you ever read that? Why does he say, offer your body? And here's the simple answer, because when he's got your body, he's got all of you. When you. If you've ever been to a wedding, and most of you have, the, the wife doesn't look at the husband and say, you know, I give you my bedroom set and my 46-inch TV. And the husband doesn't look at the wife and say, I give you my couch and my entire collection of all 25 Madden football videos. No, they give themselves, all of themselves, do they not? As they become one with one another. When God has our bodies, he's got us all. Everything. No exception. 
the mindset in Bible times was that the, you know, especially with the Greeks toward the body, was the body was sort of inconsequential. Whatever you do with your body, it's no big deal. The real important part is the immaterial part. So whether you live, it, live with it immorally or whatever, that's really not important. Now, of course, if you have a pulse and you're over 30, you know that's foolishness. But that was the kind of thinking. It's a living sacrifice. Look, look at it. Offer your bodies a living sacrifice. I know it's as old as the hills, but it's still a great axiom. The only problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. By definition, a sacrifice dies. As image bearers of Jesus, God wants us to live, live out the crucified life. I am crucified with Christ, Paul said to the Galatians. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me, right? And so he tells us in the passage here that this sacrifice, this living sacrifice needs to be wholly acceptable to God. It's your reasonable service, your logical service. The word worship in this passage was connected to the service aspect of the temple. Worship. Hence, the old translation, I think, makes more sense to the passage, reasonable service. But the point is clear. And in view of all that God has done, it simply makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It's simply reasonable that we surrender our lives to God as a, re, as a living sacrifice. Now, the Bible speaks of what those sacrifices of God are, the ones that he loves. And there's an Old Testament passage that says, take away you know, the, your sacrifice. I can't, I can't stand them. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. With these he will not despise. Have you ever read that? And in the New Testament, listen carefully. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, let us therefore, through him, offer continually the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, and to do good and to share, because these sacrifices are pleasing to God. But So God says a life that's a living sacrifice has the look of surrender. It has the look of praise. It has the look of gratitude, giving thanks Are we not living in the most ungrateful day this world has ever known? In spite of everything we have, we live in an ungrateful world. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, that's going to be a sign of the last days. Men will be ungrateful. That's why believers in Jesus need to be just the opposite. We need to be be the most grateful people on earth, don't you think? The Facebook crazes of recent, many of you are you social media geeks, you love the social media and you see all the, you know, the bucket challenges, you know, take the ice bucket in the water, you know, for ALS or some great cause and everybody dumps it and they nominate three more people to do it. <clears throat> By the way, the, you know, the Muslims have a counter, uh, th- literally, the Muslims have a dust bucket challenge to fellow Muslims. And they literally poured dust upon them in remembrance of what Israel is doing to Gaza. Can you, I, I'm serious. There's another craze that's out there right now on Facebook right now. It's a pretty, it's a good one actually. It's, it's, it's the grateful challenge. You nominate people, you talk about things you're grateful for, and you, and you got to do this for several days and whatnot. And I read a few of them and I, and I thought they were all good. They're good, good, good. 
Good things to be grateful for, but they're also very typical. Thankful for my spouse, thankful for my kids, thankful for my job, thankful for my health. All very typical and completely unmoving. About a month ago, I was sitting out on the deck of the coffee shop I frequent. And uh, it was a beautiful day, and I was the only one out there. And out comes Gloria. I've known Gloria for 12 years. She became a widow about 12 years ago, about 71, 70, 71 years old. And um, the most grateful person I've ever met in my life. And she was, she was dumping the garbage. Her, her, her son-in-law owns the place. She's dumping garbage into this huge, these two huge, big plastic garbage sacks. And starting to drag them, just kind of hulk them, you know, around the back. Which, and then she had to go all the way to the end of the block to get rid of them. But as she was doing it, she looks up at me and she says, Pastor Pat, she says, it just occurred to me. I am so grateful for the garbage men. I thought, huh, what? I mean, she goes, can you imagine what life would be without garbage men? <laughs> She'd made a good point. And so I, you know, of course it was my duty. I said, oh, well, Gloria, let me, let, me, let me throw this garbage away from you. Oh, no, 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 you don't need, oh, no, no, please, I insist. So I grabbed those two bags of garbage, and I started dragging them around the corner, and they were heavy. I'm dragging them all the way to the garbage bin thinking, oh, God, thank you for garbage collectors. Thank you for Gloria. Thank you for giving me an image bearer of Jesus who is grateful on the lowest level. And so when I came to church last week, somebody came up to me and said, hey, Gloria, yeah, what about her? I just saw her on Friday. She just died. And I was so sad because I loved her as a sister in Christ, and I knew that the world had just lost one of its most grateful servants of Jesus, a person who could be grateful to the glory of God for the bare bones minimum of life and blessings and all of those things. This is how we become genuine image bearers in the world. When we're grateful for not the things the world are grateful for, but for everything. And everything give thanks, right? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Amen. Now Paul also has a charge here to be, not to be conformed, but to be transformed. And I know many of you are familiar with it, but here's what it says. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good, perfect, acceptable will of God. If you were raised in a Christian home, Chances are you had a significant set of morals imposed upon you, right? Am I right? They were imposed upon you. A lot of you Christian parents right now, you're imposing those morals on your kids, and rightly so. You don't want to, you know those morals aren't going to save them, but they're, they will give them direction, give them protection, and hopefully 
They'll receive the gospel sometime in the whole process, right? If those morals that we impose upon our kids, if we convey the idea that this is your box, this is where you can go and no farther, if those morals we impose upon our kids to conform them to Christianity become the basis for spirituality in their life, so that they look at their friends and they say they don't listen to the same music they listen to. They don't go to the same places that they go to. They're not sleeping around with people. You're not sleeping around with people like, like their friends are, etc. If that becomes the basis for their spirituality, then what's happened is very dangerous. Your confirmation without transformation leads to legalization. And this is, the re- this is tricky business, but this is the reason why parents must constantly be preaching the gospel to their children and letting them know that just because they obeyed mom and dad, that doesn't save them, etc., etc. The simple solution for your own life and for your children's from being trapped in the world's kind of thinking and embracing the world's kind of ways And there isn't a week that goes by in my life, not a week that goes by in my life that I don't have one or several conversations with Christians who are clearly being formatted by the culture rather than God. There is a simple, and God has given it to us, the simple solution to being shaped by everything else is the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world, but be metamorphonized. Go through the metamorphosis, not just of salvation, but being changed from the inside out by the renewing of your mind, because that's the battleground, isn't it? The battleground and everything is lost right here. Our minds are filters. Remember this your mind is like a filter. A filter for garbage. It's a garbage collector. And I'm telling you, it picks up trappings of attitudes and sins and pride and bad thinking. And so we need our minds constantly renewed and fleshed, washed out and washed over and cleansed and there's only one thing that can do it and it is the pure, unadulterated word of God. How shall a young man keep his way pure? Keep his way clean, the psalmist wrote. By taking heed according to your word, right? Jesus said you're already clean because of the word that I've given to you. Paul says By the washing of water, by the word, is how we get clean, how we sanctify our marriages, our lives, individually and corporately. Your struggle with sin, your dullness of joy, your wrestling with knowing the will of God in your life are all tied into your time your surrenderance, your surrender, and your obedience to the very words of God. When the Bible speaks, God himself speaks. And we have to believe that. And if we do, we can also believe that God will begin to redirect our minds to Jesus. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being 
there's that word metamorphosis, transformed into the same image from one level of glory to the next. We start looking a lot more like Jesus. When, I mean, I've got a lot of kids, and I mean, my kids experience this all the time. All the time. People saying to them, Ah, what you did rings a bell. No pun intended. You, were, you acted just like your dad. Which isn't always good, by the way. That was just what, that's the same face your dad makes. That's, a, oh, that's, that's the exact same expression. When the people you encounter, follower of Jesus, encounter you, do you give them any semblance, any thought? Does it ever occur to them that you look something like your father, your greater father? There's an image coming out. Not perfect, but it's directing me back to God. Does your life have the image of Christ coming out that draws people? Or do you repel people with your attitudes and your actions? That's, that's a pretty simple question, isn't it? Now, we have a garbage collector that shows up every day to take our garbage out, out of our lives, when we come to Jesus. Amen? And as we do that, we let the word of God wash over our minds. Then the image starts to come out. And it's not just theological, and it's not just devotional. It's theologically devotional. And it looks a lot like Jesus. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for our time in this very familiar passage of Scripture. And Lord, my heart always goes to those in our midst who don't know Jesus. And they're not a brother or a sister in Christ, but they're thinking about these things. And this is, this is important to them, and they're contemplating. And like the man in the last service, Lord, there might be some people here, Lord, that are thinking, I, I want this. This is my desire. I I want to have my sins forgiven. I want to become a member of the family of God. And you may become a member of the family. You don't even have to sign any papers because Jesus gave himself to you, for you. No condition, no take back. He died for you and rose again for you. And if you would place your faith in him to be your savior, your sins would be forgiven. You'd become a child of God. Follower of Jesus, is there anything about you that looks like God that draws people to God? Is your life epitomized by joy and praise and gratitude and sharing and doing the things that please God? Is there some 
disruption going on. Just figure it out here. Confess that to God. Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he's trying to work out that salvation. Surrender to him today. Your body and your mind. For his glory we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.